the Spirit of Jazz podcast, where music dances with mystery, with your hosts, Bill Carter and Jeff Kellum. Welcome to the Spirit of Jazz. I'm Jeff Kellum, along with... Hey, this is Bill Carter. We're glad you've tuned in again. Bill, I was thinking of, of all the different kinds of jazz there are, and I realized if someone asked me the difference between, I don't know, traditional jazz and bebop, I, I wouldn't know what to say. I'm not a musicologist. All I know is what I like to hear. So how about today I throw some terms at you and let you tell us what these words mean, and then um, you could find maybe a, a proponent or two uh, if you're going to talk about it per- particular kind of music. Well, we can talk for a bit and then play a couple of samples from the vast Presby Bop music catalog. Yeah, that sounds like a terrific idea. All right. I can't wait to see what comes up when we talk about acid jazz. Oh, nothing. Nothing at all. Let's start with that word. Jazz. Jazz itself. Sure. I mean, we've talked about that earlier on. Jazz is often described as a musical style or a category for selling recordings or a suspicious cacophony that frightens church organists, you know, raises the blood pressure of symphony violinists. (laughs) Uh, For me, jazz is music that blurs the distinction between composition and improvisation. I would think of jazz more as a verb rather than as a noun. Is it jazz it up? Yeah. Yeah. So it's assuming that there's more to music than what's printed on a page. Yeah, and, and you know, if I think of a piece of art and somebody says, well, that's that's good, but can you jazz it up? Or there's a graphic, well, can you jazz it up? You're adding to something which is already there and enriching it in a affective way. That's right. And that's how the whole tradition of the music got started, as far as I can tell. There were church hymns played by a cornetist named Buddy Bolden. He was a resident of New Orleans, probably playing a cornet that he picked up uh, that was left over after the Civil War bands all concluded, taught himself how to play it, and then added some uh, uh, some musical gumbo to the quarter notes of the hymn. And the people began to sway, and they said, yeah. And the tradition moves on from there. Then it goes from the church out into the clubs. Well, before that, it was in the streets. Uh-huh. It was parade music as well for celebrations or for occasions of grieving. Uh, I mean, I, I think back to uh, the James Bond movie, Live and Let Die, which starts with a New Orleans funeral. And they're singing and dancing, or actually, they're marching to a very slow dirge and... Um, and then after they, they drop off the body to be buried, uh, the band cuts loose. It reminds me, Matt Wilson was telling me an episode or so ago, or telling us about uh, taking his drum and, and marching around the room and thinking he might get in trouble for it. It turned out it was something that people really enjoyed. And that's similar to taking the music to the streets and, and having a parade. It's Mardi Gras. And, and one of the recurring themes in, in the musical tradition of jazz is how far do you go in terms of presenting a piece for people to hear and how far do you go in the other direction of presenting a piece that animates the crowd 
I mean, there was that wonderful moment when Duke Ellington's career was reignited at one of the early Newport jazz festivals. They started playing a piece called Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue. And to punish one of his saxophonists who had been out too late the night before, he gave him a solo and let him play through the blues sequence 27 times. And he he dug in. And as he dug in, a platinum blonde in one of the box seats began to dance and they almost had a riot. (laughs) It was just having a, it was like a New Orleans celebration at the Newport Jazz Festival. It was more than a concert presentation of a set piece. Uh, There was certainly a lot of it that was set and preset, but something happened in the presenting of it that animated the crowd. Sure. That's jazz. Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, certainly that's the aim of most most genres of, of music is to is to animate people in some way if it's more subtle in the heart or if it means standing up and stamping your feet and clapping your hands but jazz seems to be the music that is most likely uh well and rock and roll i guess would and let me press you a little bit now and move toward the kinds of jazz that like presby bop yeah presbyterian bebop broadly understood that's the uh the beginning of the name bebop was actually a reaction to swing music. So let me let me kind of run through maybe the the chain here. You have early music, early jazz, a lot of it based on 16 measure songs, like gonna lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside or when the saints go marching in. Uh, some of them spirituals, some of them popular songs. That got more complicated as the music tradition developed as some um, schooled musicians joined the fray, they began to arrange it. And then by the time you get to the 1930s, they had structured it to the point there were different sections in the band. There was a saxophone section, a brass section with both trumpets and trombones, a rhythm section with piano, bass, drums, guitar, perhaps early ones had a tuba. And this multi-sectional music was developed into a big band. Yeah, And all of that coincided with the popular songs of the late 20s, the 30s, into the 40s, or World War II. Tunes that were based on simple figures like In the Mood mm-hmm. or um, String of Pearls uh, were highly popular. And the radio was taking off. There was a piano in every home to soon be replaced by a radio in every home. And that's how people heard this music. Musically, however... Uh, World War II hit, and it intersected with a number of things. One was a growing disillusionment, not only with war, but with race relations in America, and also uh, existentialism coming out of France. So it's like, live for today, what the heck, Um, this is all there is. And that music began to be reflected with faster tempos, angular melodies, uh, harsher harmony, and it was a way of uh, challenging the musicians. Uh, that was kind of the beginning waves of the music called bebop, which got its name by the melodies. Bebop, bebop,
a lot of the tunes recorded in the 40s and the 50s, and even to this day, were based on other people's songs. Do you have any idea why they did that? No. It was because of copyrights. Oh, See, oh when, when you copyright a song, it belongs to you. But what you're copywriting are the words and the melody. What you can't copyright necessarily is the structure, the sequence of chords. So this is why in, in a, a performance, somebody might say this is based on the chord progressions of autumn leaves, and then they play something that doesn't sound anything like autumn leaves. That's right. I composed the tune some years ago based on the old Cole Porter tune, All of You, and I called it Kitten Caboodle. And uh, altered a couple of the chords, wrote a nice little melody. Come to think of it, we haven't played that in a long time. It might be time to pull that off the shelf. Right. So bebop goes faster. Mm -hmm. It's angular. Uh, it expresses uh, more anxiety, even anger. Mm. And in response, there's a tradition coming out of the West Coast and the East Coast, uh, which is called cool jazz. And some of the proponents were people like uh, Miles Davis, um, who utilized the arrangements of Jerry Mulligan, the great baritone saxophonist, and others. Uh, people on the West Coast like Shorty Rogers. Dave Brubeck was the beginning of this. And the fire was muted. They could still play fast. Uh, the harmonies were richer. And my perception is that a lot of contemporary harmony was beginning to find its way in um but the instruments were the same instruments were the same for the most part uh there were some bands in that early cool jazz and we're talking like 1948 to maybe 1953 and then beyond some bands added a french horn hmm. which add kind of a mellower tone so uh, one of the classic proponents of this sort of thing was Henry Mancini, who got the contract not only for a number of, of uh, films, but also the soundtrack of Peter Gunn, uh, the black and white show, 25-minute show that had a detective. And they went to a place called Mothers, a working club, where there was a jazz band. And there was a vibraphonist and a guitarist, and they were playing kind of low-key swing and music behind the scenes right and a companion piece to that was mr lucky where the the club was on a boat i guess uh, yeah. but he wrote that tune too didn't he he did. he did so um it had that kind of softer sound it was a uh, commercially viable in some ways that uh, traditional bebop was not but at the same time uh for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. So what comes out of that was something called hard bop. Mm -hmm. And the proponents were people like Horace Silver, an astonishing composer. And uh, Art Blakey, the drummer, who loved to kind of come up with a shuffle beat. And um, that, that music just kind of bangs along. And it was almost gospel-centered in very simple triadic chords. It wasn't as complex. And man, your foot couldn't stop swinging. Yeah, and uh, the Blue Note Records' biggest hit, I think, was Donald Byrd. Well, he was at first. Art Blakey uh, had a tune called "Moanin," yeah, which was a actually the title of a composition by a Philadelphia pianist, Bobby Timmons. 
And there was just something ba 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 da da So the the trumpet player would be taking the lead, like harken back to Louis Armstrong trying to imitate the voice. Yeah. You know uh, what I mean? And the and the rest of the band would be singing Amen. Amen. Yeah. All of this continued to be a stew pot. So as the tradition developed, the last innovations became kind of the ground of the new work. So by the time you get to the early 60s, um, a lot of hard bop had, again, sped up the tempos, was requiring a lot of um, facility by the musicians. And that continued to develop. And then by the mid-60s, there were two things that were really developing. One was kind of a combination of what had come before, but also the emergence of using electric instruments. Hmm. There was an electric guitar, West Montgomery, for instance, a hard-swinging guitarist from Detroit. Uh, But by the late 60s, uh, Herbie Hancock says he shows up at a recording studio. Miles Davis pointed at a Fender Rhodes electric piano and said, play that. (laughs) And he didn't like it, you know, at least not at first. And that's when different styles began to fuse, beginning what we would call jazz fusion or jazz rock at first. But actually, the fusion had been happening for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Jazz had begun to... uh, partner with the symphony orchestra uh dave brubeck's brother howard wrote a piece called dialogues in jazz which was recorded gunther schuler um and bless his heart uh, leonard bernstein yeah uh they all began to to draw on the resources of the music um and again there's no exact demarcation of these these kind of times but what we see is this continuing evolution of the living tradition Well, and, you know, having played a lot of pop music on the radio, uh, I think back to uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears in Chicago, Earth, Wind, and Fire, um, which brought in a lot of Afro-Cuban jazz uh, and some of their work. And then a lot of the Chicago stuff. In fact, Chicago did an album maybe 10 years ago of Glenn Miller tunes (laughs) in in their own style, uh, which is the amalgamation of these forms again. Oh, make me smile. (laughs) The global influences, particularly as TWA began to go around the globe with airlines and people will be finding their way to New York or Buenos Aires. Hmm. Um, The whole uh, before that, Dizzy Gillespie had fallen in love with Cuban music and particularly percussionists. Yeah. So some of that wanders into his bebop in the late 40s and continues throughout the rest of his career. And Stan Getz had a top-selling recording uh, based on the bossa nova, the new thing. I I found a slide that I had taken on a trip to New York when I was maybe 12. And I looked carefully at some of the neon signs. And there was Tito Puente's name on a sign at a club. But my gosh, I was was within one block of Tito Puente at one time. (laughs) And of course, I wouldn't have known who the man was at that time. But sure. Sure. Well, and and there are a lot of things that uh, we just never picked up on. I, when I was doing graduate work in New Jersey, I saw a flyer one day in the post office for a concert with Dave Brubeck. It was going to be his Christmas cantata, and I said, "Oh, I'm sure that's not very good." <laughs> little did I know. Yes, that's right. That there would be a personal connection to that one. 
Yeah. We, we miss things all the time. Yeah. Um, one, one other piece of, of jazz, which may circle us back to some of its roots. When I was in college, uh, one of my classmates was named Kirkwood Cunningham. He was a chemistry major, but he had a radio program on the college station. And I said, you're playing Dixieland. And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, "We don't. I don't call it Dixieland. It's traditional jazz. I'd rather call it traditional jazz. Yeah. Well, traditional jazz actually was a movement in the 50s. And uh, I'm just, as, as much as I enjoy playing some of that early music, uh, with some of my friends, the fact of the matter is, um, in the 50s, it kind of resurfaced around the time of the Red Scare. So it, no one's ever really kind of named that. Yeah. But I'm uh, often noticing how much folk with the same skin tone as myself really like traditional jazz. <laughs> and they're scared to death of bebop, and they're really terrified of avant-garde well now that we've we've talked about these is there a, a, a tune that you'd like to use as an illustration of uh one of the forms that we've talked about well let's uh tell you what um second line music is often that's kind of a, a phrase used to describe some early jazz from new orleans so when we put together a, an album of music based on and inspired by the Psalms of Israel, I created the piece from the last Psalm, Psalm 150, which is uh, six verses of praise with all the instruments. And this one's called Everybody Dance.
So anyway, that's uh, Everybody Dance. And, you know, I think uh, if I might use the word eschatologically, that's where everything's headed, a final dance, a final festival, a rejoicing. Every foot will move. Mm -hmm. There are tears. There will be tears of joy. That's right. So anyway, uh, this living tradition of jazz is something which, well, this explains why we have so much to talk about, Jeff Kellum. Well, we do, and you know, we've we've looked at the spirit of jazz, uh, the spirituality of jazz, and today we've been talking about jazz in more general terms, right? And understanding, you know, how the where the music comes from, how it develops, how the tradition begins to progress. A tradition that is alive can't be frozen in time, no matter how hard we try. Yeah. That's why when uh, you go and play in churches, the frozen chosen defrost a little bit. Uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we, on the Spirit of Jazz uh, podcast, we've been talking about the different kinds of jazz, a little bit of the history of jazz, and invite you back again next time to uh, con continue the conversation. That's right. You take care out there. And spend the rest of this day listening to some music. Thanks for listening to the Spirit of Jazz podcast. This is a production of Presby Bop Music. To find out more about Presby Bop, our music, concerts, and recordings, please explore our website at www.presbybop.com. And send us a note telling us what you think about the Spirit of Jazz. We'd love to hear from you. Check in with us again next time. I'm Jeff Kellum. And I'm Bill Carter. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>